All right, hello, and welcome back to Outside the Box, an EMS podcast where we're driving our clinical performance here in the city of Sugarland. I am fortunate enough to have with me today Michael Dimitri, one of our very own, and he's going to help us talk about assessing our trauma patients. Something you've done once or twice? You have a little experience in that? Yes, sir, just a couple times. Okay, cool. So we're we're going to have him uh, spin us up on some of these practices and what we're doing to take care of our trauma patients. So thanks for joining us, uh, Michael. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your background and, and where you're coming from before we dive into this content. Yes, sir. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Michael Dimitri, guys. I've been fortunate to be with the Sugarland Fire Department almost four years now. A lot of my training and experience uh, prior, I was in Houston Fire Department for about seven years, and I've been a tech med since 2018. So I'm heavily involved. I love everything that we do here, uh, and I also love being part of teaching active violence uh, to uh, local officers, SWAT, uh, 4BNISD officials, and regular uh businessman as well nice okay so you you run the gamut of experience and backgrounds that you're teaching content to in um, response to violent events i like to think so yes <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've seen you do some of the stuff here and uh, as why we're we're bringing you in to talk about this stuff today and, and go forward with this we're going to talk about a specific way of evaluating trauma patients and we got a nice acronym, and we're going to march through our trauma assessments. <laughs> okay. Play thanks, on words. Thanks, thanks, guys. <laughs> we're going to talk about the MARCH acronym, Trauma Assessment, Taking Care of Our Patients, right? Kind of become uh, the standard in the violent event world, and um, comes out of TCCC, comes out of the Special Operations Medicine book, all, all of it. And we're going to take it and just make it what we do, right? Mm-hmm. And we got to talk a little bit about this and, and kind of share the idea that if we do this on a daily basis, we do this routinely, regularly, that it's just what we do. So the time that it becomes uh, more dangerous, violent, more concerning, and we need to have thoughts in other areas, we're not trying to come up with new ideas. We're not trying to remember something different. We're doing what we know how to do. And that's not just for our medicine in it. We see it all the time in the tactical operating space that... Uh, the maneuvers we use aren't going to be new on game day. They're going to be the ones we practiced. The medicine isn't going to be new on game day. It's going to be what we practiced. Just like anything, right? any type of performance, what you rehearse is what you're going to go do, and you're going to be good at it. Mm-hmm. So, Couldn't agree more. So let's talk about March. Uh, tell us your thoughts about March. I know you have some some good ways to explain what this is as a concept. March to me is just not it's not another acronym. It's literally a standard in trauma care that you can apply to any patient, whether it's one patient, 20 patients, 30 patients. It's almost a it's a framework in EMS medicine and also military medicine to rapidly assess and prioritize uh, casualties and life threatening injuries. Uh, You can quickly identify and address these life threatening injuries if you follow the correct algorithm of March. All right. And to give this some some context, where I came from, I like going back in time, the way I learned trauma assessments was this rapid head-to-toe primary survey of things. And you put your hands on the patient, you run them down, you take a look at your hands occasionally and see if there's blood on your hands and figure out they're bleeding from there. But you don't stop. You go head-to-toe. You find the bleeding. You find these problems. You find these injuries. And then essentially you make your list. You prioritize your list. And then you start responding to that list. Puts a delay in the interventions that tend to cause threats to life. And really then when I learned it, it was all ABC. That's what it was, ABCs all day long. This person's bleeding out and they're going to die. For the love of God, we better get a tube in their throat because somehow that's going to save them. And we'll talk about airway management in these trauma cases, but 
that's where we've evolved from just in the short time that I've been in medicine is gather information, make a list of the information, respond to the information. But that's not how March is set up, right? No. Tell us how March is set up. So March is set up at all dependent on how many patients you have. And it's also dependent on how many injuries that one patient could, could have. It could take anywhere from 30 seconds to about roughly three minutes, depending on it. And it's just like any algorithm. Once you follow that algorithm or that acronym, you don't just stop and start over. You take care of the letter that you're addressing, and then you press play, and you continue down that algorithm until you get to the very end. So you are working from M to H. And the most important thing is you have to hit every letter in the acronym. And this isn't just a random order of things. Like no, we sir. didn't pick out letters and it make a cool word. Like there's a purpose to this order, right? It is. There's a purpose through every every single order. It, this is very rapid, it's systematic, and it allows us to quickly identify what is important first and slowly go down the train of, of thought. But just because H is at the very end doesn't mean it's not important. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're trying to address that here today. Excellent. I like it. And not to get too dramatic about it, but it's organized in the fashion of what's going to kill you the fastest. I mean, that, let's take care of the life threats first that we can wrap you up in blankets, keep you warm. It's cool, but then you're just going to bleed out in the blankets because we didn't take care of that. That's a bad thing. That's terrible. <laughs> All right, so let's let's dive in this. We talked about why it's effective. Uh, we talked about it um, coming into our practice, and I like your point that it's one patient, it's 30 patients. It's, it's the same algorithm. It's the same routine. It's the same processes. What we're going to pick apart is that it might look a little different if you have 30 people that need assessment and treatment versus one or even two. But we're going to do this, like I said, on, on a daily practice. So we might see it on car crashes, on long falls, on isolated violent events uh, that we're dealing with, in addition to hopefully never, but let's be realistic, the violent events that might be coming around to us. Michael, let's, let's run down this. Let's, let's take March, take it a step at a time. Which started off with M. What are M. we dealing with an M? M is massive bleeding, massive hemorrhage. We're learning more and more and more in any active violent situations. Bleeding is what's killing everyone. It's not the airways, not the respirations. It is the bleeding. Because the more you lose blood, the more you become acidotic. The more you become confused, the more you become into shock. And all the other problems start arising that. So we have to take care of the massive bleeding first. And that is the first thing we address as it. And just like anything else, we have to identify is it maybe arterial or is it venous? Is it oxygenated or is it deoxygenated? Yes, arterial is very dramatic. It shoots out, spurts out. It's bright red in color. Venous is not as dramatic, but it's just definitely just as serious. We identify it, and I think just as uh, when we hit up all the trauma classes, we, we, uh, we like to harp on pressure. First thing you do is slam pressure on them. Put some pressure on them. Contain that bleeding. Identify where it's coming from. And then, depending on where that bleeding is coming from, grab the appropriate device and we'll talk about the different devices that we have and use that to contain the bleeding. I like it. I like that the, it all boils, it does, it all boils down to pressure. We talk about wound packing with five to other guys. It's just pressure. Just getting pressure in the right spot to make it count. What are some other ways we're going to control bleeding? Well, it all depends on, again, where the injury is coming from. If it's in the extremities, we have a fancy tool called a tourniquet. High and tight is what we like to say, or high and or high don't die. So you put the tourniquet as high as you can on the extremity to the arms or the or the legs. Now, if it's uh, active bleeding in a junctional spot, now bullets have a fancy way of going different directions. They like to go in a chest and bounce off at an armpit. That becomes a junctional. Junction is usually where two areas meet. That unfortunately we cannot put a tourniquet on that. We have a 
an awesome an awesome uh, intervention called Quick Clot Combat Gauze. We contain it in our IFACs and trauma kits, and that has a hemostatic gauze that's able to contain that bleeding and causes coagulation to stop the bleeding in, uh, in junctional. And then we have pelvic binders. We also have junctional devices, and we also have pressure bandages. Israeli bandages mm-hmm. is one that's uh, that comes into mind that we that we also contain here in Sugarland. So we have a variety of options to control bleeding because controlling bleeding is that important. Yes, sir. That we don't get to not control bleeding. We don't get to, oh, that one's kind of tough. I guess we'll move on to the next step. Right, that one. We're going to control bleeding. Yes, sir. This is a no-lose situation. Right? Yes, sir. We're going to control it. But there's a difference between controlling this hemorrhage and resuscitating the circulating volume, correct? Yes. That's not what we're doing in this step. No. This is stopping bleeding. Yes. So we get devices on. We don't have blood spraying out anymore. Are we complete at this step? We are, but make sure we get them trauma naked. Find out where the source is coming from. Don't always don't assume where it's coming from. Find the source, attack the source, stop it. Got it. I like it. Be thorough. Be very thorough. Yes, sir. So we did that. We have bleeding controlled. What do we do for A? A is now airway. Airway. Okay. Airway is something that we're always taught back in EMT school. Contain the airway. Is the person bleeding or not? Maybe all it takes is a little jaw thrust. Maybe all it takes is a little positioning of it. And we also have a fancy, easy tool, NPA. Uh, and that's something we can lube up and slide it right into their nostril as long as there's no facial trauma or there's no obstruction and it's able to slide in there. And that right there maintains an open patent airway. Our job is to allow for ventilation, allow for actual exchange between in and out of the lungs. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a little spoiler that ours is going to be our respiratory support and respiratory management. But here at A, we're talking about getting the airway open. We're, yep. talking, we're talking about the physical structure of the airway and getting it open. We'll talk about the breathing part in the next step, correct? Yes, sir. And if we have a variety of patients that are going to need attention, does that look different than the one or maybe even two patients that are banged up pretty bad and that need this assessment? How does that look different? Or does it look the same? It almost looks the same as long as you're getting the patent open airway open. Okay. And that'll be, this, again, the second step in the acronym process. Right. And even as, as we have it in our standing guidance that, I mean, open up the airway and any any of your triage algorithms and you're moving through and you're classifying your patients, like you open up the airway to see what we get and hopefully we get some breathing. Hopefully they're already breathing and we're just making it easier. Right. I love NPAs. Right. I, I, they're very easy. I love mm-hmm. using them on your, your patients that aren't breathing the best because of a seizure or your diabetics or something that's kind of self-limiting that we're going to start correcting, hopefully. MPAs are a phenomenal tool, and don't discount them here because, like you said, it's a, a pretty easy application. It's so much benefit from it. Right? It is. Don't discount your MPAs. Okay, we got a really good – we don't have worries about spinal trauma in this patient. We got a really good head tilt chin lift going. We slide in an MPA. Airway's in good shape. We move to R for our respiratory support. What does that look like? So a lot of people always ask me, what's the difference between respiration and airway? So I always hint at that airway is the mechanical process of moving air in and out of the lungs. Now we got the mechanical process. We opened it up. Now it's the gas exchange at the cellular level is what we're worried about. Are mm-hmm. they actually taking in oxygen? Are they actually breathing out CO2? And if not, how do we fix that? Now, Entitle, I know you love Entitle. It's a great tool to use. And if their Entitle is a little bit off the, off the marker, how do we address that? How do we actually get proper gas exchange? And I know sometimes in a traumatic environment, in an active violence environment, or even the back of the ambulance, it's very, very, very hard to hear with the stethoscope. Mm-hmm. I get that. But another way to, to do it is simply just put your hand on their chest and both your hands on both of their chest. 
and actually feel if there's adequate chest rise and fall. If you can actually see it or if there's actually bleeding or if one side is off than another, then we have to think about needle decompression and then uh, needle decompression and which intercostal space and how to release that air and how to release that blood so we can actually inflate the lung back up again so they can actually get proper gas exchange. Nice. And I like how you're talking about this, that we're not even talking about vital signs. We're not talking about respiratory rate or any of this stuff that, especially in these circumstances, we should be able to pick up on these things from observation. These are subjective evaluations. These aren't the quantitative measured, uh, oh, the respiratory rate is 23, so it's okay. No, I like how you said it. What was the quality of it? Are they even moving air? Do they have enough um, inner thoracic space to expand their lungs to move their chest wall? Or no, they don't, right? And uh, that gives us a really good differentiation between the chest walls not moving because they're not breathing any, they're not making any effort to breathe, or it looks like they're trying to, but this chest wall's not moving at all. And now we have some other worries to go by. Um, and everything is way before we want to jump into innovation and things like that. These are simple techniques that we can easily fix and help alleviate for the patient to get better care in the end. Yeah, so I got, I got a challenge question I'm going to throw at you. This is where BVM ventilations come in on this patient. What if we get the patient who's inadequately ventilating? Um, we don't have any concerns about attention pneumothorax, or we've addressed the concern of attention pneumothorax, and the effort to breathe just isn't there. Is this the, is this point we're going to break out the BVM on this patient? I would say not yet until you addressed the next two in the acronym. Okay. So we're going to hold off on, on these next two items. Um, does it make a difference if we're dealing with this multiple patient situation versus one patient? Or For as long as we're hitting every criteria, it shouldn't make a difference. And by that time, I hope additional resources have come in to help us. Let's to hope delegate. So, huh? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. I think that's an important differentiation because... If we go put a BVM on this patient and it's just you. We've committed. You're done. Like that, you, you have stopped. You have, you have marked. No, you've marred. You haven't marched. You've marred. <laughs> and, and we lose some pretty important things that are going to kill this patient. Yes, and then we're back to where I was when I started a year or two ago that as long as it's airway breathing circulation, everything's fine. And we had an awful lot of people with tubes in their throats and no blood in their circulatory system. And we find out how many people that did not help. So let's not get bogged down in, in this respiratory support, right? Let's, let's make sure that the, uh, the pneumo is not there causing trouble. We got the airway open in the previous step. We're moving air in and out. Kind of goes in conjunction. We can't skip over the airway part and get right to the respiratory support. We got to make sure those kind of play nicely together, but don't get locked into this step, yes, right? which I think is an important point, as we mentioned the next one too, because we could easily get locked into this next step and not progress any further either. What's our C? C is circulation. Okay. But Tell C, me about it. C varies because it all depends on if you have multiple patients or it depends on if you now are very isolated with that patient and it's a red patient and you're in the back of the box and you're not treating them with your partner. So I still have not taken out my monitor yet because mm -hmm. I'm still assessing M, A, and R, and C. Now, the first thing you do is, is the skin. How's the skin look? Is it cool, claiming diaphoretic? These are things that you can visually see to see maybe my patient is going down a spiral. Maybe he's decompensating. Now also put your hands on him now. Feel him. Is it thready? Or maybe you have absent distal pulses. If you have absent radial or dorsalis pulses, that's going to tell me something, that your blood pressure might be a little bit low, and now you're probably going into shock in that sense. And this is without me taking out the, the monitor. This is without me turning it on and things like that. And then what would be ideal in any shock environment? Of course, lay them down, elevate their feet if you can, 
try to treat them as quickly and adequately as you can. And then uh, if you have the opportunity to get access, again, if you're away from an active violence situation, then yes, we can, we can talk about access routes as well. All right, let's talk about access in a minute. The key here is identifying shock. Yes, sir. And you haven't said vital signs. There's vital signs that go with shock. There's the shock index. I love the shock index, right? And you're going to see the shock index pop up more as we put in guidelines and reference points and everything else uh, as we talk about resuscitation. But we should know. We should be able to look at this patient. We should be able to touch this patient and get this feedback that this patient is sick. Bad news. The other thing is, when we talk about compensated shock, like how, how does compensated shock look? I mean, does it look much different than we would expect a normal person to look like? Like they're injured, uh, their skin's probably okay, their heart rate's probably faster, but they don't, again, going back to what, what I originally learned, that we didn't classify it as shock, quote unquote shock, and treat it until it was a heart rate of 140 and a systolic blood pressure of 60 over nothing. Like, oh, well, now you're in shock. No, that's dead. That's what that is. We, we missed the opportunity to treat shock long ago. Though, as we're in this step, we're identifying this shock. It's kind of this high index of suspicion that if, if we had to control massive hemorrhage, likely they're going to be in a compensated state of shock. Like if they've bled that much to that point that they need a tourniquet, they need a wound pack, they need a junctional device, they've lost enough blood to put us into a mild state of shock. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And let's not ignore it. Right? We talk about it all the time when I, when I talk about STEMIs, which is a complete left field from this discussion, but you get the STEMI with the blood pressure that's soft and the heart rate coming up, that's cardiogenic shock. They're compensating, but it's cardiogenic shock. Same thing here that we get a, an amount of blood loss, and we're terrible on estimating blood loss. Let's, let's not act like we're good at it. Right? You look at a puddle of blood in the ground, you're like, oh my gosh, that, that's got to be three liters, and it's you know, just spread out the right way. Or you get whatever. We're terrible at it. Mm-hmm. We're not good. Nobody's Okay, I'm not good. I'll speak for me. I'm terrible at estimating <laughs> blood loss. But blood loss is blood loss, and the body will adjust and will compensate for it. But we get to this C, and if we discount them as, ah, no, they're fine in the circulatory uh, realm, we could really be missing this, uh, this indicator that, no, you're, you're going to have some problems later if you ignore this. Because it goes back to the old adage that patients don't suddenly deteriorate. We, we just suddenly notice. And it's because we didn't pay attention to the signs ahead of time. But yeah. I like the point that you make about let's, let's pick out shock by touching this patient. But that's, that's the information we need. That'll give us what we need. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's talk about these access choices. Let's talk about obtaining access. So we, it's appropriate to obtain access in this step. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about it. What's what's top choice? What do you like? Now you're with your patient. You do it. I was I would love IV if we can get IV. Sometimes it'd be the skin is too clammy. Sometimes they're very dehydrated in a sense, which would be very hard. Now if we have to go IO, I know it's a very easier route. Uh, please try to attain it from the humoral head mm-hmm. as possible. I was very fortunate enough to go to a cadaver lab, and when they opened it up, you get to see that subclavian vein and the amount and effect fluids or medicine or vasopressors has to reach the heart it takes two to three seconds to reach the heart from a humoral head versus mm-hmm. 10 to 12 seconds to reach it from a tip fib and also you don't know what kind of obstacles are in the way from the tip fib especially if you have a polytrauma patient and things things involved so if you have the opportunity to get access please identify uh, the correct source which would be a humoral head if you can and is it appropriate to get a second io absolutely I think it's a fantastic approach. It doesn't necessarily need to be too humoral. I love the humoral head. Humoral head's phenomenal. If we're doing our massive resuscitation out of the humoral head, uh, we're going to be in good shape. 
And if what we have is a tibia because the other humerus isn't available, we have a second route for meds. Uh, we can't go mixing meds. We'll talk about blood being a therapy option for these patients and where that comes in that we're not going to go mixing stuff. That's going to be a dedicated line to it. So don't limit yourself to just one and not even just in trauma. If you have a patient that you need to resuscitate and build back up and you need that kind of access, get that kind of access. Go get you some access, right? I like these injury or these these access choices. I like the humoral head. Uh, let's let's make a quick point about fluids though. What temperature would you guess the fluid is sitting in the cabinet of the ambulance? It'd be a little bit cooler yeah. than than average. So for sure. And not even cold, right? Even if we say it's let's say seventy five, right? Ish. That's almost 30 degrees, that's 25 degrees colder than the human body. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference. That's a, that's a that's going to make you cold. But that's already a problem because now we're into H. Yes. Tell me about H. And also with the fluids, we try to maintain that 90 system, mm. the titrate. Good point. Uh, if we can. And uh, I know we discussed this earlier, definitely don't overload them in fluids. Definitely don't thin the blood out which we'll get into H and talk about why as well. Yeah, good. thanks for bringing me back on that one, 100%, that we, we go for the systolic targets when we resuscitate with fluid. Uh, but you're right, too little blood pressure can be bad, or well, is bad. Too much fluid is bad. Uh, it's, a, it's a real balancing act sometime. So um, welcome to choosing between bad and worse yeah. is really what that is. <laughs> All right, uh, so cold fluids are bad news. Which leads us into H again. Tell me about H. H. So H is hypothermia. Mm-hmm. It's also for recognizing head injuries. But we'll talk about hypothermia first. Okay. Because hypothermia is now the third leading cause of death and trauma. Number three. It used to be tension pneumothorax, but we keep negating the hypothermia. And why is that? Because hypothermia does, it can impair the normal blood clotting process, especially if you get too cold especially if your body gets around 95 degrees. Mm-hmm. If you get shot out in a school, for example, and your body hits the, the cold pavement or the cold tile, your body heat is leaving, your body heat is leaving into the air as well, and you start slowly decompensating. So yes, hypothermia can impair coagulation. Hypothermia can also lead to decreased cardiac output, make you very bradycardic and cause vasoconstriction. Hypercarmia can suppress your immune system, leading to some type of high probability of infection. Just like with burn patients, we got to cover them up so they don't get infected. And of course, hypothermia can lead to very uh, confused, altered mental state. Nice. And and I refer you back to the episode with Brian Munn, where we talked a lot more in depth about that lethal triad with the the coagulopathy, uh, the acidosis, and this hypothermia and how they all play together. And it's just, it's just cyclic. One makes the next worse, which makes the next worse, which makes the next worse, and on and on and on, and there, there we go. That um, the body will, will respond to bleeding with its clotting cascade. It'll try and stop this bleeding. And at some point, it'll become, it, it'll tip and it'll invert. That it'll go from trying to clot to just letting everything flow. That the, the, it'll, it'll kind of give up this full-on coagulopathy and just lets things free flow. The hypothermia enhances that free flow. The acidosis that's coming from damaged cells dumping the intracellular contents out into the bloodstream contribute to that as well. That's why it's important to control the bleeding because the amount of time that this person's bleeding directly contributes to how close we are to that edge and falling off into this free flow bleeding. Um, so it's important to note and worth reemphasizing that it's not just this person's bleeding and the clotting can't keep up. The clotting system is just going haywire and stopped. Like it quit and is actually helping the person bleed out. 
now instead of just, I can't keep up with them. No, I'm helping. I join the other side. Can't beat them, join them kind of stuff. And uh, hypothermia is a key part of that. Controlling the bleeding is a key part of that. Ventilating this patient, making sure we have the airway and some respiration going on is how we fight the acidosis for this. That's how we take care of this stuff. And hypothermia is, is crucial. Right? We always over, overlook it because Michael, we're in Texas. Is like the first cool day we've had in about six months. Yeah. Uh, that if we're out in the middle of the afternoon dealing with a trauma patient, it's 110 degrees outside. I'm having the AC cranked in my ambulance so that I can work, so that I'm comfortable. And how much good am I doing the patient in that situation? You know, you got to think about the patient. If you're not sweating in the back of your ambulance, how is your patient going to feel? All that hard work that you put in, for example, if you had to spend two to three minutes wound packing and putting pressure just to stop the bleeding process, now they're hypothermic, their blood is just going to run out like a little river, and mm-hmm. they're just going to bleed out. So we don't ever stop to think about what's the patient going through, what's the patient experiencing. And again, just in the, if you, especially if you put them in the back of the ambulance, it's very good to start turning on the heater. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to make you uncomfortable, but think about the outcome and the uh, in the end for the patient. Yeah, and it, it's worth noting the outcome piece that – the impacts of what we're doing in these upfront minutes goes much further down the road where we don't see that controlling the bleeding and kind of fighting off coagulopathy and maintaining body temperature are crucial for the 24, 36, 48 hour survivability of these patients. That if they get into a coagulopic th- state, they remain acidotic, um, their body never recovers. They might seem okay for us. We deliver them to the trauma center. They seem okay at the trauma center. They make it over to the ICU. They make it up to surgery and things are okay. The body can only tolerate so much insult. So we need to limit the insult. Let's not let it continue to run away. We got to stop that train. And hypothermia is like you're saying, now we're coming number three, the killer. And this is why is that all of the uh, measures we put into place get undone when the body temperature drops. And Mund brought in the good point when he was on a while ago that our um, hemostatic gauze stops functioning below 95 degrees. Mm-hmm. That if we get a body temperature below 95 degrees, it's just fancy expensive gauze. It's not doing its thing. It can't have the chemical reaction that it's supposed to. And uh, this is very counterintuitive, again, to the way we've been classically thought is always strip naked patient and trauma naked. But then we left him that way. That's how we always left him because you get to the trauma center and the surgeon's going to want to see him naked. So we just leave him naked. Yeah. And I mean, I grew up in Chicago. We were doing this in Chicago. Hmm. 20 degrees outside and we're delivering a naked trauma. Just put a sheet on him. It's cool. Yeah. Just cover him up for privacy. Like, no, we're killing people by letting them be cold, man. But we we have this opportunity to bundle up this patient. I like what you're saying. It's, I mean, it's about the patient. Get ready to sweat. Right. We have foil blankets. We have sheets, bed sheets, mm-hmm. the AC, the temperature to change it. We have different capabilities to warm up the patient. Mm-hmm. Improvise. And we, and we do have a fluid warmer, an IV fluid warmer. We have it up here in the supply room. We're going to get it out on ops, and there's going to be that fluid warmer. So we can put 100-degree fluid into patients and keep them warm because it's one thing to try and retain what body heat there is to retain, that we do that kind of passively with the blankets and we mm-hmm. wrap them up and all these things. But as the body becomes deranged, it stops producing heat. And that's one of the bigger issues is the metabolism becomes deranged. It stops producing enough body heat to maintain or to, to offset the loss of heat. So we put some warm fluids in there and give it some more heat too. That's yes, another option of it. But H has this other side of the coin, the head injury stuff. 
tell us about head injuries and, and what we're looking for in H for head injuries. So head injury, uh, I know we're going to hit on a EMS term that we learned back in school, Cushing's triad. Okay. And so we don't have the capabilities to assess for a TBI. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a CAT scan in the back. Maybe one day, we don't know. Uh, we don't have uh, x-ray vision. We can't really assess. And just like in the airway aspect or the respiration aspect, we have to kind of just put your hands on them and just assess in that way. And that's how you that's how you figure it out. There's a different way to figure out a hand injury. Now, we always assume shock at, with low blood pressure, a high heart rate, and a high respiratory rate. Cushing's is the completely opposite of that. It is a high blood pressure, a low heart rate, and a low respiratory rate, muffled uh, irregular respirations, uh, as the textbook usually says. Now, if we have a traumatic patient and maybe a serious fall of construction site or anything, and we're getting those vital signs, that automatically would just kind of click with me and say, maybe this, this gentleman's going through a Cushing's experience. Maybe he's having Cushing's triad as well. So again, we don't have the capabilities of the tools, but just on your basic vital signs, you can easily assess and trigger to, fi to figure it out as well. Yeah, I think it's, if it doesn't ring alarm bells for you that a trauma patient that needed hemorrhage control has a high blood pressure, if that doesn't ring the bells, like, we need to talk about that. Like that, that's, that doesn't, those puzzle pieces don't fit. Yes. That you get through this algorithm, you get to the point of collecting vitals on this patient and their blood pressure's not 80, 90 systolic, like there's something else going on. Especially if it's 160, 180, like yeah. that's not how this goes. That's not how it goes. Yeah, that, that, not. that doesn't do, doesn't work like that. Um, and there's an important difference for head injury. We get a head injury patient goes back to some of our fluid resuscitation that we talked about. 90 systolic kind of being our target. How does that change when we think we're dealing with a head injury? So our goal with any head injury is to increase the MAP, which is the mean arterial pressure, to about 110. All that means is that mean arterial pressure, it measures blood flow throughout the body, and it makes us understand that the body's reaching all of our major organs. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's helping out. And the way we can do that is just to give them IV fluids and vasopressors, which we both contain here yeah. as well. And we're, we're going to, you're going to keep seeing the systolic blood pressure targets, and we're aiming for that 110, 120 on the systolic blood pressure with resuscitation. And because that be, that is to try and overcome the intracranial pressure. That's where we get the brain injuries, right? Is that the intracranial pressure exceeds the circulating, the cerebral perfusion pressure. So the perfusion is down. We're trying to increase the cerebral perfusion pressure to overcome the intracranial pressure. It, it's not a great, it, it's what there is. It's bad and worse. Mm -hmm. We either sit here and look at them and watch nothing happen and brain tissue die and anoxic injury is set in, or we try to enhance some of the circulation, preserve some of the tissue, get them in front of the, in front of the trauma team, get the neurosurgeon in there to relieve that pressure and, and keep the circulation going, which gives us those higher targets than hemodynamic generally speaking, resuscitation. We aim for that 90 systolic, that permissive hypotension kind of stuff because we don't want to go blowing out clots. We don't want to dilute this person's bloodstream down and, and make them into salt water, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, Kool-Aid, um, make them into pasta salt, whatever you want. Pick, pick your mm -hmm. food, right? I don't know why they're all food, but right, we fill them up with salt water. Salt water doesn't have any oxygen-carrying capacity. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for us but expand volume a little bit. But with the brain, we need that pressure behind it to keep the brain going in life. Um, another thing to consider when we talk about head injury, which kind of goes back a couple, is 
uh, end tidal is a, a crucial measurement of these patients, especially if we're controlling their ventilations, that we want that target. We want a 35 to 45 target. We want to get as close as we can. 30 to 50 is, is really outside of those becomes our danger zone because the CO2 is a very patent, patent potent, very potent vasodilator, right? If we blow off all of our CO2, we get too vasoconstricted and there's no circulation. We have too much CO2, we get vasodilated, and we just contribute to cerebral hemorrhage, and we don't get circulation and perfusion. So it's a, a narrow range. Again, the old thought was just head injury patients, you hyperventilate them, just bag away all day, and we find out we're killing brains because mm-hmm. we are taking away the ability to have good vascular tone. So 35 to 45 is, is where we need that to be if we're controlling ventilations and respirations, which goes back a couple of steps. But it's important if we identify the presence of that head injury. Oh, man. And while we're at it, since we're talking about the end title, 20. 20 is going to be our key number, that if your patient has an end title below 20, man, we, we need to call that a shock state. Right? Even if they look good, things seem okay, end title comes back at 18, right? we, we need to call that a shock patient. Okay? It's very hard to get your end title under 20. Like we can sit here and I can breathe really fast and my end title will drop, but I'll pass out before I get to 20. Right? Like there's got to be some type of derangement that produces that lower end title. So don't, don't discount it. Don't be 18, oh, they're just breathing fast. No, they're, they're dying. That, that's what that is. Yeah. Um, so the head injury stuff is very important to throw in there as well as you know, H slash H here. Keep them warm and protect that, that brain. What other thoughts do you want to throw in there about, about head injury, hypothermia? You got any other? I do want to throw in that once you take care of all these steps, you're not done. Mm. It's just like any basic intervention. Did what I do, did it help? Did it make him or her worse or did it make him or her better? And then you have to go back and start all over again from M and then go down the process again. And Sugarland Fire Department, we've prepped everyone for success. We have IFACs that contain all these tools and mm-hmm. then we have uh, RTF bags now in, in the pumpers. We have fantastic other pressure tools. We have the pelvic binders that we just got. And then we also have uh, the ventilation that we can help if we need it down mm-hmm. the long run. So we have so many tools to help you succeed. But I think it's so important to understand that just because you get through the H, it's very important that once you cool down and once you decompress everything that you just done, start all over again. And it shouldn't take you uh, maybe three to four minutes this time. It should probably take you a little bit quicker and mm-hmm. go down that uh, that algorithm again. I like it. And just to just touch on a couple of things, as you mentioned some of these tools, if we talk about shock management, identification, and circulation, we do have vasopressor options. We have that. We talked really about the fluid options mostly mm-hmm. in there. Where does what step of this does TXA come in? What step of this does vasopressors come in? I would say it comes in the C stage, and All it could be C- the second C stage that, that you get to once you hit that again. Because TXA is super important, especially if they're having internal bleeding that we uh, know of. We also have the the ultrasound on the ops vehicle mm-hmm. that we can do a fast exam to see what we got. And then we also have the opportunity to do vasopressors, which we can put the epi in a bag and do a slow trip, or uh, have the uh, kind of the sepsis dose where it's the uh, micro and the epinephrine in the micro. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, guys, norepinephrine's coming, oh. which will give us a lot more <laughs> flexibility in managing some of these resuscitation cases. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, so look for that one soon. Um, excellent. Michael, I, I appreciate your, your time taking us through this. Do you have any other any closing comments you want to throw in there? Anything we didn't get to talk about that you wanted to say? 
anything from multiple patients to maybe something very serious in MVA to something as simple as a geriatric patient falling from a bed. Personally, I use the March acronym in every trauma situation. And if you can follow that rhythm, to me, it's proven to be very successful. Um, and I just like the opportunity to uh, thank you for being here and encourage everyone to continue using the March algorithm and, and to look for it in future protocols. And full disclosure, uh, Michael does not receive financial benefits for promoting March. He does not work for that. <laughs> so, uh, my fun little joke. Well, I appreciate you having here. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for letting me have you on the show. Uh, and and like we just heard, this is kind of the daily practice. This is our, our standard of trauma care. Um, you're going to see our universal trauma care guideline be revised to include this as our assessment and care prioritization. And like we said, that's that's the goal is we do it regularly. We're proficient at it. We're good at it. It doesn't take a lot of extra brain power to do it so that when other situations demand more brain power, we're already locked on with this. Our assessment and our care priorities are nice and smooth and flowing. Awesome. And at the very good, uh, a very good approach to standardize it, that anytime I come in to provide you assistance in this care and you say, I'm on this step, I know right where you are, I know what you've accomplished, I know how to help you going forward, or you get pulled off of this and I take over this in this C stage. Again, we're standardized enough that I know what you've done and I know what le what's left to be done. So. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Michael. I appreciate it. Thanks, y'all, for tuning in and listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.